All right, we are in the midst of our summer sermon series that is built with questions that you guys have submitted. So typically we're going to go through books of the Bible, but we're taking a break from that this summer, and we are answering questions that you guys have raised for us. So today's question is one that many of you have probably thought about at a given point. At least if you've been at Center Church for a hot second, you probably have thought about this question at some point. So on a given Sunday morning, we're not going to offer you three practical steps to make your life better, to improve your marriage, to tell you how to manage your money better. So we get to the end of our sermons and we do what's called gospel application, right? So at that point, we want to tell you this is who Jesus is, this is what Jesus has done for you, and we want you to leave with that. Okay, we want to teach you how to think, um, and, and then you apply that to your lives. How does the gospel, how does what Jesus has done apply in all of life? And so we want to relentlessly hold up Jesus and remind ourselves that he is the most vital aspect of our lives. And, and so at the end of every sermon, essentially we're saying, believe that. Believe that this is who Jesus is. Now, admittedly, this can leave some people feeling maybe a bit cloudy or a bit ambiguous at times regarding what does this actually mean for our everyday lives. And one of the ways that we try and flush that out is through our community groups, right? We want to answer, ask and answer questions that help to press the gospel onto our hearts. But the question for us today is in this vein. You talk a lot about applying the gospel to our lives and in various situations. Could you give us some practical tools and examples about what this looks like on a daily basis? So this is a que or the question that we're going to try and answer this morning. So here's our plan for today. We're going to define the gospel, make sure we all understand what the gospel is. I'm going to offer a caution and then we're going to provide some real-life examples. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into this. God, thank you for this question. Thank you for the gospel, that we can ruminate on it, that we can think about it. I pray that we would understand the gospel in greater ways this morning. I pray that we would take a step of belief, and I pray that you would work in us in ways that we cannot work in ourselves. So God, have your way in this time. Do what we cannot do or manufacture on our own. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so what is the gospel? The word gospel literally means good news. It's good news. So when we're talking about good news, notice this is not talking about good acts. Good acts that you do. The gospel is news that we listen to and then we believe in. So... The fact that the gospel is good news is helpful and it's encouraging, but we need more than that. What makes it good? Who or what is the news about? And 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of the gospel as being Jesus' death and his resurrection. And if we look historically, the gospel is the turning point of history. There was this man who claimed to be God, who was unjustly killed, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And so what we find in this is that the gospel focuses in on a man. And that man is Jesus. 
Jesus being the only one who has walked on this earth and never sinned. Jesus is the epitome of good. He is what makes this news good. So the best summary of the gospel, maybe not the best summary, a good summary of the gospel, the way that we phrase it here at Center Church oftentimes is the gospel is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And everything that's contained in that, okay? Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. So that's what the gospel is. Now, a clarifier. Knowing the gospel, and what I mean by this is being able to regurgitate the definition that I just gave of what the gospel is. Knowing the gospel is not the same as believing the gospel. Knowing that Jesus died for your sins is not the same as experiencing in your soul forgiveness, the freedom that comes from that. Knowing about the concept of grace is not the same as encountering Jesus' love in a deeply personal way. Feeling, knowing, experiencing that as Jesus hangs on the cross, that he is there for you, for your sin, because he loves you. Knowing the gospel leads to believing the gospel. But those are not the same thing. Believing the gospel then is what then leads to applying it to our lives. And and so as we think about applying this news to our lives, the gospel is massive. Okay, It's intended to speak to every part of our lives. And so we need to continually rehearse it. We need to know it. We need to believe it. We need to apply it. And and this is why we listen to it. We hear it week after week. Okay, now a caution for us. Many people have been taught that the gospel is the good news that must be believed for salvation. And we would say yes and amen to that. A concern, though, is that we view the gospel as merely the entry point into the Christian life, that it's just the beginning of it. So the danger in this is we just consciously or unconsciously view the gospel as kind of the kiddie end of the pool of being a Christian. The life, death, and resurrection, or once we believe in Jesus, life, death, and resurrection— we should then, we begin to think we should then move on to, to better things. So then we're going to swim into the deep end of the pool. We're going to move on to maybe the more mature things of the Christian life. And so the thinking is then, you know, uh, maybe it's advanced theology. So we, maybe we want to become an end times expert or we want to try and solve the endless Calvinist Arminian debate. Or maybe we decide to become passionate about social justice issues, uh, thinking that there's this almost unspoken belief that good Christians are going to be world changers, but but even in this, we're going to put this weight on our shoulders. We're kind of creating another law for us that we need to fulfill. Now, theological study, social justice, these are not bad things but they are not the gospel. They are not the gospel. Tim Keller says this. He says, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. 
The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truth. Rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven, but the way we make progress in God's kingdom. So the gospel is the center of Christianity. We never move beyond it. We never mature out of it. It always must remain the focal point of our Christian journey. And this is part of the emphasis as Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. He says there, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. So Paul is telling, he's reminding the church in Corinth that they weren't merely saved through the gospel, but they are being saved currently through the power of the gospel. So the gospel is news that they received in the past. It's news that they are currently standing in and it is the word that they are implored to hold fast in the future. So it has past, present, and future implications for the church in Corinth and for us here today. And so this is why week after week we preach the gospel. We remind ourselves of who Jesus is, of what he has done for us. We call ourselves back to Jesus, to the cross, to his resurrection. Okay, now I want to take a number of life situations and try and talk through practically how we can apply the gospel. So first of all, I want to talk about when we are hurt or sinned against. Have you ever had someone talk behind your back about you? Have you ever had a friend who no longer wanted to be your friend? Have you ever genuinely sacrificially invested in an organization or a person only to be accused by them of seeking their harm in some way? Have you ever been fired from a job or betrayed? You feel like your spouse or someone has betrayed you in some way or just felt unappreciated. We have all been hurt. This is a common language for us. We have felt lonely. Someone's words have cut us deep. The gospel has much to say to us. The deepest pains that you have experienced in your life, Jesus knows them intimately. He he doesn't just know them from a distance. He knows them intimately. He knows them intimately, for one, because he created you, and he cares deeply about you. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. You believe that? Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. He also knows our pain intimately because of what occurred on the cross. Jesus did not deserve to be on the cross. Throughout his life, he had only spoken truth. And when he had done that, he did it graciously. He never swindled anyone. He never gossiped about somebody. 
He even healed people. He, he showed goodness and kindness to people who did not deserve it. In every sense of the word, Jesus' death was a wrongful death. He was being sinned against. He was being hurt. Now, when we are wronged, when we are hurt, when we are sinned against, we have an insatiable desire for revenge. We want to correct somebody. We want to defend our reputation. I mean, tell me how many times have you, when you feel hurt or sinned against, you have had a multitude of conversations in your head, right? You go into the shower maybe, and you're like, this is how this conversation is going to go. And we plan it all out, and then it hardly ever, if ever, goes that way, right? So let's think about Jesus on the cross. How did Jesus respond to this hate, to being sinned against on the cross? Luke 23, 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. While he is experiencing injury that will lead to his death, while he is being sinned against, Jesus is praying for, not for the harm of his executors, he's praying for the forgiveness of his executors. So think about your experiences in life that have left a mark. Think about those experiences in life that are so painful you've built fortress-like walls around that part of your heart so that no one will touch it, no one will know about it because it's just so painful to go there. When we look at Jesus' example and we think about those experiences in our lives, the call for Christians is to pray for, to forgive those who wrong us, who sin against us, who hurt us. Now, qualifier on this, this is not a call for someone who's in an abusive situation to stay in an abusive situation. It's not an excuse for an abusive situation at all. Okay, so when we think about this, Jesus' example and what we're called to do, to forgive, to pray, is what we would call a moral imperative. Okay, this is a moral imperative. Now, you might be thinking, Come on, Kevin, like you get to the end of the sermon, you're not telling me the things I'm supposed to do. You tell us this is who Jesus is, this is what he's done. So this, we, we can't end with just the moral imperative, right? And, and if we are honest with ourselves and we think about these painful experiences in our life, we have to ask the question, how can we do this? And if we're honest, we can't. We can't forgive people. We can't pray for people. It's beyond us. It's impossible for us to do this. But the gospel will call us to live in certain ways that are impossible for us on our own. But the gospel will empower us to live in this way. The gospel is the actual means of God's power in our lives. So it's not just an example it is the actual power for us to do this. Romans 1.16 says, 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. So the gospel is how somebody is saved. But the gospel is also how a Christian grows spiritually throughout their life. In every aspect of life, we need the gospel to empower us so that we can make sense of life, so that we can endure, so that we can maintain hope when hope is being sucked out of our hearts, so that we can find joy when there seems to be few, if any, reasons to be filled with joy. So what the Bible teaches is not just an example for right living, but the actual power. The gospel empowers the act of forgiveness that we are called to. How? How does it do that? Gospel application moves us to understand we are those Roman guards that are executing Jesus. We, in and of ourselves, we have mocked Jesus. We have flaunted our own sin. So when we hear Jesus pray this prayer of forgiveness, it should strike us that he's prayed that over us as well. He's praying that over us right now. Furthermore, he has forgiven us as well. Betsy read a passage of scripture for us at the beginning of our time. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is an amazing verse. This is not saying when you stopped sinning, when you cleaned yourself up. It's saying in the midst of your sin. Jesus dies for us. So the reason that we can pray for those who hurt us, the reason that we can forgive those who sin against us is because Jesus has done this to us and for us. He changes our hearts, and he then is the one that empowers us to be able to do this to others. We cannot do this on our own. The only way we can pray for those who sin against us, that we can forgive those who hurt us, is for us to first experience this and then to trust Jesus to work this out in our own hearts. Otherwise, this is impossible for us. Now, on the flip side of our hurt is a reality that we do this to other people. We have done this to others as well. We have hurt people. We have left people. We have slandered people. Every single one of us. I think it's easy for us to forget this, or at least to minimize this or downplay this in certain ways. But the Bible is clear on this. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned. All there means you, me, every single one of us. No exclusions here. Every single one of us 
falls into this bucket. And, and so Tim Keller, and it, with this other quote that I want to put up, this really should help us to understand what's going on in the gospel. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. It has to be both. We are more sinful than we would ever admit. And we are more loved than we can even imagine. It's beautiful. It's a hard word when we look at the sin side of it, but it's the most beautiful reality when it's both and here. So the gospel is going to both humble us and encourage us at the same time. Forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is messy. But Jesus knows. He understands. Any messy path that we're going to walk through in this life, Jesus knows, and he's walked that path with you. He's walking that path with you because he's forgiven you. He's forgiving you even in that moment. Okay, so the concepts that we've talked about here related to hurt also speak to times in life, maybe when we fail in life, or, or maybe when we disobey. So I want to talk especially to the kids here for a moment, okay? Kids, you are going to disobey your parents. You will. You are going to make choices in your life that are wrong. You're going to make choices that you are going to regret. And the fact that sinless Jesus, okay, not just Jesus, but sinless Jesus hangs on a bloody cross is evidence that your sinful choices, your rebellion against your parents is costly. The only way for your sin, for your wrongs, for your sin to be forgiven, for your wrongs to be righted was for God himself to die. That was the only acceptable sacrifice for your sins to be forgiven. So what I'm about to say does not diminish the fact that your sin is wrong and costly. Your sin is wrong. Your disobedience against your parents is wrong. And it's costly. But you also need to hear that God loves you while you are sinning. Your parents might project something that might not convey love. They might speak harshly at you. They might act in ways that are also sinful, and they need to apologize. They need to ask for forgiveness when they do that as well. But you need to hear, Jesus loves you even while you are sinning. But don't hear, he loves your sin. He doesn't love your sin, but he does love you even in the midst of your sin. He loves you, which means he wants you to see that your disobedience of your parents, your sinning against a sibling or someone else, that will not lead to your happiness. That won't end up in you being fulfilled. So when you want to tattle on your sibling, 
because you want them to get in trouble, that's not ultimately going to lead to your happiness. You're teasing, you're picking on your sibling or someone else, that's not going to lead to your happiness. You getting to play with that toy that you think is the greatest toy is not going to ultimately lead to your happiness. You getting the biggest piece of cookie is not going to lead to your happiness ultimately. So in the midst of your sin, Jesus is wanting you to see how he is patient in love. And in that, he is wanting you to turn from your sin and turn towards Jesus, to trust him. Now, when you watch TV, maybe when you listen to your friends, they might tell you your sin isn't a big deal. Or people might get angry at you when you sin against them. Or they might abandon you. They might shame you. They might make fun of you. But look at what Jesus does. He doesn't do any of those things. Jesus stays. Jesus loves. Jesus forgives. Jesus loves you to the extent that he's willing to die for your disobedience against your parents. This is how much Jesus loves you. And this, then, is how, when you are sinned against as well, you can respond in ways that are loving and kind. Okay. Now, frustration for all of us. Whether we are training a child or a dog or a coworker, we're going to find that people are going to make, animals are going to make, the same mistakes over and over. When we've said the same thing 20 times, don't we have the right to just blow some smoke and vent our anger at some point? If we look at Jesus, we see someone who is relentlessly patient. But, but not in a way where he just gets run over, right? We read in John 1, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is relentlessly patient. He shows grace. But it's not as though he does that at, at the expense of truth. He's holding both of these realities together. The key to us being patient with others isn't simply telling ourselves to be patient, like we've got this mantra that we recite over and over, be patient, be patient, be patient. That, that's not the way that we'll endlessly be patient or invoking like breathing exercises for ourselves or maybe like punishing ourselves when we're impatient. We need our hearts changed. And this only happens through the power of the gospel. The gospel shows us a patient, forgiving God dying for our impatience. But not just dying, also resurrecting, conquering. He wants us to see how he has been patient towards us, not as a means of guilting us into obedience, but so as to change us by his love. Part of the reason we're afforded these opportunities to grow in patience is to help us see that we are impatient, to help us see that we are demanding people, that we are more sinful than we realize, and we are 
more loved than we can imagine. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, right before Jesus' arrest, Jesus finds his disciples arguing. And what they're arguing about is which of them is the greatest. Now, aside from the fact that Jesus had already instructed his disciples on this topic earlier in the Gospel of Luke, I think many of us would think it reasonable if Jesus just unloaded on his disciples here. I'm about to die, right? Don't you understand what I'm about to go through? But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus patiently teaches them about greatness. And what he does is he connects the idea of greatness to that of being a servant. See, the disciples were concerned with themselves. They wanted to make much of themselves. And Jesus comes in and he says, you're not going to find greatness by making much of yourself. Greatness is found in you bowing before other people, washing their feet, becoming their servant. The means to grow in patience is to stop believing in ourselves, stop trying to fulfill our worldly dreams and to learn to believe in Jesus, to believe what his death says about us. We are guilty and we are loved. That's what his death says about us. To believe what his resurrection says about us, that we are no longer enslaved to sin. Whatever sin you have in your life that you think you can't escape, Jesus' resurrection proclaims you are not slave to that. You can say no to that sin. You have the power to say no. We must let the gospel shape all of our priorities in life. Our impatience, our impatience reveals a trust in ourselves, not in Jesus. Our shame, our embarrassment over our failure reveals a trust in ourselves. So when we feel these things, when we feel embarrassed, when we feel shame, when we feel hurt, when we become angry, these are all diagnostics that can help us see what is it that we are trusting in. Because what we're experiencing, the shame that we're experiencing in that moment, that doesn't come from Jesus. He'll convict us of sin, but then he's going to bring peace as well. He wants us to experience grace. So when we feel like running away from Jesus because we've sinned, that's because we're trusting in something other than Jesus. Satan has a foothold in some way that's convincing us in that moment that God will not accept us, that we are not good enough which we should have already admitted when we initially believed the gospel. We are not good enough. And yet, Jesus dies for us in the midst of our not good enough of us. If I could give us just a quick summary here. How does the gospel apply to our situation? So, first, what am I feeling? Am I feeling impatient? Am I feeling hurt, angry, sad, lonely? So 
as an example, maybe I feel hurt that my kids don't appreciate how I clean up after them. That's probably something most parents have felt at some point in their lives. Okay, second step then, when I identify what I'm feeling, be reminded of the gospel story. Jesus lived a sinless life. He died a terrible death for undeserving sinners like me and like my children. So then how does Jesus encounter uh, a similar situation or this emotion that I'm feeling? And what is his response? Jesus loved people in many ways, only to have those same people crucify him or disown him or run away from him. And then how have I hurt Jesus in the same way I feel hurt? Or how have I been impatient with Jesus or with others? So the reality is, I take grace for granted. I'm guessing you do as well. I oftentimes view myself as innocent. I minimize my sin. And and then how can Jesus' response help inform or encourage me in my response? As I trust Jesus, I can deny my desire to be recognized, to be praised, to be made much of, to be bowed down to in some way. I can choose patience. I can choose grace. I can choose not to hurt someone else because this is what Jesus has shown to me and now gives to me. So in this, the gospel is going to speak to every part of life. Anything that we encounter in life, the gospel is going to have something to say. Where we find our identity. Many times we care more what another person thinks about us rather than our value being rooted in what Jesus says about us. Jesus calls us child. The the most powerful being in the world calls us beloved. Why would we afford authority to someone who devalues others? Or someone whose approval for us is going to wax and wane? We have to care most about what Jesus says about us. In the face of fear and suffering, we're reminded of many things. God is a suffering God. He understands our pain. Furthermore, He empathizes with us. Moreover, He takes our greatest suffering upon Himself. He bore it for us. And He has conquered our suffering. He promises to work good in all things, including our suffering. He promises to never leave or forsake us. On the cross, we see Him being shrouded in darkness. So we understand him as one who runs into our darkest moments with us to rescue us, to show us grace. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection speaks to every part of life, whether that's a dead-end job, whether that's how someone is driving in front of you, whether that's sports or hobbies, bad service that you might get in a store or a restaurant, any success that you might experience in life, questions that you might have, vacations you might dream about, spilled drinks on your floor or your carpet, political discussions that you might get into, money, family, 
exercise, what or how much you eat, rest. The gospel speaks to every part of life. And the gospel involves a radical call to entrust our lives to Jesus and to orient the whole of our lives, not selective parts, but the whole of our lives around Jesus. There are many times in life we feel like there are things we need to do for God. There are works that we need to do for God. And there's just this great gospel-soaked verse in John 6. It says, Then they said to him, What must we do, talking to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is why we end our sermons with gospel application. Because the greatest call in our lives is not to go do something, but to believe in the one who has done something for us. And so the call then for us is to believe the gospel and practice applying it to every aspect of your life. You're not going to get it right every time. You're going to fail a bunch. Back in college, I had a serious health issue, and I remember the doctors, as they were trying to figure it out, them telling me, this is like foremost experts, they say, when they couldn't figure it out, they said, this is why we call it practicing medicine. Practice applying the gospel. You're not going to get it right every time, but there's grace for that as well. As you believe the gospel, and as you practice applying it, to your life. Let me just give you this encouragement and I'll end with this. Do this in community. Work this out in community. Read, obviously what we've talked about this morning is going to require you, if you're going to know Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection, you're going to have to spend time in the Gospels understanding who Jesus is, seeing what he did. And so we're going to have to spend time in the Bible. Read the Bible in community. Ask probing questions. Even if you have questions, like you get to the end of this sermon and you're like, Kevin, I still don't understand. Ask that question, okay? I'm not just trying to look impressive, okay? I'm not just trying to give simple answers here, okay? What I'm trying to facilitate is heart transformation. So if you don't understand, ask that question. Don't feel foolish about asking that question. Think often and daily about God, how God has been kind to you and recount that to other people as well. You need to hear yourself talk about God's goodness and kindness in your own life because it's been pervasive. We oftentimes don't see it, and this is why we need to remind ourselves of it. Tell yourself, tell others often about God's kindness. And if the gospel doesn't seem powerful to you, if it doesn't provide you sturdiness right now, be honest about that. Don't fake the funk. Don't pretend everything's okay. We need to push into that and wrestle with it because something isn't right. The gospel is intended to provide us sturdiness when we're surrounded by uncertainty. The gospel is the greatest news in the world. There's nothing like grace. Nothing at all. 
I understand what I just said doesn't come close to doing the gospel justice. There's so much more. It's so much bigger, so much better, so much deeper. But let's press into it and let's press it upon our lives.